Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We are in the eighth week of our summer series that we are calling The Answer, where we're studying through the book of 1 Corinthians chapter by chapter. Uh, And uh, it's been a great time thus far. If you're doing math, eight means that we are halfway through the book. So congratulations, you have made it halfway through the book of 1 Corinthians. Give yourselves a round of applause, yes. Um... But if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, here's why we're talking through this book. Uh, If you do a brief study of the ancient city of Corinth, you will discover rather quickly that there are a number of similarities between their city, their culture, and our culture today. And for an exhaustive list of those similarities, feel free to go back and check out some of the previous sermons. But uh, for time's sake today, I'll just give you sort of a brief recap. Uh, If you look at ancient Corinth, you discover that this city was a place of wealth and influence. Its influence spanned far beyond its borders, and it affected the entire Roman Empire. Everything that happened in Corinth became the influence in social circles and in society and in arts and in many ways throughout their culture. Uh, But it was also a port city where people were coming in and out of all the time, transient in nature, again, very similar to ours. But in addition to being known for its trade and its wealth and its influence, it was also widely recognized as a a bit of a place of moral depravity. There was a lot of sin happening in Corinth. Uh, We've mentioned every week that you could walk the streets and see countless temples erected to pagan gods and goddesses where people were encouraged to engage in every sinful and sexual practice known to man and celebrated for that. But the Apostle Paul, like us in San Francisco, believed that a place this wicked and a place this dark was the perfect city to plant a church because he knew and we know that the light of the gospel of Jesus shines brightest in the darkest of places. And so he plants this church and hundreds of people begin to get saved and get baptized and they're growing in God. And in fact, it's it's so successful that after about a year and a half, he feels he can leave it in capable hands and move on to his other missionary endeavors. But as as he leaves, he receives some frantic letters from these new Christians who begin to describe that while they love Jesus, they're discovering it's a bit more difficult than they anticipated to live for Christ in their Corinthian culture. Uh, Much of the Corinthian practices were beginning to make their way into the church, and the people didn't know what to do. And so Paul responds back with this letter that we now know as a book, and one by one, he begins to address the issues that they're facing in Corinth, and with each and every problem, he displays for them how the gospel of Jesus Christ provides an answer. Hence the title of the series, The Answer. And we've said this every week, but I'll say it again. If their city was like our city and their problems are like our problems, then it stands to reason that their solution will be our solution. Come on, how many know today that the gospel of Jesus Christ didn't just work 2,000 years ago, it continues to work today in the darkest of cities to show us what it looks like to live for Christ and our culture. And so every week we've taken a chapter from this book, we've contextualized the problem, and we've discovered how the gospel provides an answer for us today with the issues that we face in church and in culture. Uh, Today will be no different. We're gonna go to the eighth chapter and look at another set of problems. But as we go to chapter eight, I feel the need to remind us of something that uh, Robin shared last week in her sermon about singleness and marriage, which was fantastic, by the way. Uh, if you did not get a chance to listen to it live, please go to the podcast or go to the YouTube and, and watch it, uh, especially if you wanna hear a pastor say the word sex more than you've ever heard them say it before and get slightly uncomfortable in the process. Uh, she, she shared with me after church last week that a lady in our community came up to her afterwards and said, you know, I've been going to church for like 60 years, 
And I think I heard the word sex more today than I have heard in the entire 60 years I've been going to church before. And Robin looked back there and she said, mission accomplished. So there you go. It was a great sermon, please check it out. But, but she mentioned in our conversation last weekend that as we get into chapter seven through chapter 11 of this book, uh, Paul starts to get a little bit scattered as he's addressing some of these problems. He, he doesn't follow linear thought. He's a little unorganized and a bit erratic in the way that he's addressing some issues. I, I, I liken it to talking to a toddler, like where sometimes they're just going down a rabbit trail. Like, how did we get on this subject? That's what it feels like reading those five chapters. But in Paul's defense, he did not expect that his letter would be canonized in the fifth century or that pastors were going to be preaching through it chapter by chapter. He was just writing his heart to this young community of believers. Uh, but I tell you that up front because for the next four weeks, you're going to find me dipping in and out of different chapters because he is not concisely speaking about a subject in a singular chapter, but he speaks about them in multiple chapters. And today is where that will start. So we will begin in chapter eight, but we will not end in chapter eight. Uh, however, we can go there now. First Corinthians eight, verse one. He says this, now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yeah, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Somebody say amen. Anyone who claims to know all the answers, they don't know much at all, do they? But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a God and that there is only one God. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real, so when they eat food that has been offered to these idols, they think of it as worship of real gods and their conscience is violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we do eat it. We don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. Pause there real quick. I don't love that the English translation of the Bible uses the phrase weaker conscience here because it feels degrading and demeaning to people. But in the original Greek, what it really means is sensitive conscience because he's speaking about some of the younger believers in the church. Just a little side note there. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will become a vegan. I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Now, when I read this text, I originally thought to myself, okay, maybe I should have given this passage to Jazzy, our kid's pastor, who is a vegan, for what does a bacon-eating Neanderthal like myself understand of such things? Uh, however, I feel like, despite my carnivorous ways, the Holy Spirit has given me something to share this morning. So. I wanna title this chat in keeping with the theme of eating meat, and I wanna ask, uh, ask you to consider, watch what you eat, watch what you eat. That's what I wanna title this today. Uh, I would have you tell the person next to you, but that might be offensive, so let's just pray. <laughs> Thank you, Kara. My jokes are funny to you. Just give me something today, all right? I appreciate you. Uh, Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. We thank you for the timeless words of Scripture. We thank you that they are truths that are not just applicable to a group of people thousands of years ago, but they are equally as applicable to us today. Uh, I ask as we share the scriptures that you would do what you've promised, that you would go to the heart of where people are living and that this, this word would not return void, not because they are my words, but because they are your words. Uh, Holy Spirit, address those issues in our hearts that need to be addressed and may we leave this place changed today. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen. 
Uh, as we've begun to address each of these issues week by week, you've probably noticed a pattern uh, that we will once again step into today. And that is in order to understand what Paul is speaking about here and then appropriately apply it to our lives, we need to do a little bit of cultural context work. We need to dive into their culture and understand what's happening. Uh, as we've mentioned every week, Corinth was a city with countless pagan temples erected to many of the Greek gods where the people worshiped. Uh, in fact, one historian tells us that you would have not been able to walk down a single street in the city of Corinth without running into one of these temples erected to its many gods. And part of the worship in these pagan temples involved the sacrifice of meat. Uh, people would come to the temple and they would bring either an animal to slaughter or the meat of an already slaughtered animal. And they would offer that meat up to a priest who would lay it on an altar. And that priest would ask the spirit of the God to come and inhabit or possess the meat. And once the priest or priestess felt the meat has been amply possessed, they would hand it back to the individual. And that individual would eat the meat in the presence of these gods, believing that in so doing, they were inviting the spirit of that God into their lives. It was the spirit of the gods in humanity. And because there were so many temples in Corinth and because the population was so large, the marketplace sourced much of its meat from the leftovers of these pagan rituals. And so if you were grocery shopping on any given Tuesday and you had to go get some meat from the store, you might very easily unintentionally buy some meat that had been sacrificed to idols because the vendors were not forced to label their products. It didn't have to say, you know, like organic or free range or demon free in the process. They just served whatever meat they got from the temples. And when you understand that context, you begin to understand a little bit better what Paul is addressing here with these young believers. When you begin to understand the practice of this sacrifice, a light bulb kind of goes off. Because remember, many of these new Christians in the church of Corinth had only recently come out of this lifestyle. Only days prior, many of them are the ones offering those sacrifices on the altars to these pagan gods. And so when they accepted Christ and discovered that there is only one true God and they should not be worshiping these other gods, many of them said, okay, I don't want anything to do with my old life any longer. And rather than risk being accidentally possessed by a, a, a Greek god, I would rather not eat meat at all than take the risk in the process. So it starts to make sense a little bit. However, as Paul alludes to here, there were older believers or self-proclaimed more mature believers in the church who began to criticize and belittle some of these younger believers in the faith because of their dietary restrictions. They, they said, guys, it's just meat. It, it's not a spirit. Like, idols are not real gods. We all know that. So, a demon is not gonna possess a lifeless piece of meat. Just eat the burger already. Get over all of your convictions. Just join me in dinner. And at first, Paul, he affirms this conviction. He's like, actually, these guys are right. You, you are allowed to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. You're not gonna accidentally pick up a demon if you have a meal in the wrong place, which is good news for those of us who like Thai food or Chinese food or Indian food in our city because if you go to any restaurant in San Francisco, there's little Buddhas and little Krishnas and all kinds of little gods in there. And I'm glad that I don't get possessed when I go to my favorite Thai restaurant. That's, that's good news to me. But while Paul confirms their assessment, he begins to criticize their approach. 
And in his criticism, he reminds them of a truth that I wanna spend a couple of moments unpacking today because I think it is a truth that the modern church needs to understand. In speaking to the self-proclaimed mature believers, he says, let me remind you what maturity really looks like. Maturity is not demanding your freedoms. It's not demanding your rights. True maturity is to take on the, 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 the thoughts and the positioning of Christ and say, I'm here to serve other people, not serve myself. And ultimately, love looks like valuing the others in your community who are not further along in their faith than you are. True maturity is being chiefly concerned with those who are newest to the faith and not demanding to have my rights or my depth or my knowledge or, or anything that I need in the process. He's, he's saying to be mature is to truly value the youngest believers among you. In fact, he takes it a step further because then he says, and when you who think you are mature build a community that is more about your rights than the new believers, what you don't realize is that when they sin, you're actually taking that sin upon yourself. The mature inherit the sin because they've created a toxic environment for the newest believers among them. So, Let's unpack this a bit, because I don't think Whole Foods is selling idolatrous meat, and I don't think that many are planning to leave here today and, and you know, go eat the, the demon food down the street. So, 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 so what does this look like in our context? Well, it might feel a bit confusing if we focus in on the eating of meat, but if we bring in something that's a bit more consistent in our context, let's say alcohol, suddenly, I will, come on, David, thank you. Then we begin to get a clearer picture of what Paul was trying to address in the church. I know a number of people in our community who have a history with alcohol. People who used to have an abusive relationship with alcohol or an addictive relationship with alcohol. And when Jesus called them, a recreational relationship with alcohol was not an option. They were not going to be able to have a responsible relationship with drinking. And so in an extreme way, they cut it out of their lives completely because they didn't want to go back to where they came from. Let me say it like this. In his love, God gave them a conviction for their protection so that they could continue to grow in their faith. But while they have such a conviction, not all Christians share that conviction. I know also other believers in our church who don't have any conviction about drinking alcohol. Many who can enjoy a glass of wine or an adult beverage without feeling like they have violated their conscience in the process. It doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It doesn't mean that one loves Jesus more than the other. It simply means that those two people have different backgrounds and as a result of where they came from, the Holy Spirit has been faithful to give them the appropriate convictions so that they can continue to grow in their faith. But how unloving and how immature would it be for one of those who does not share in the conviction about alcohol to look at someone who has such a conviction and to say, you're, you're done, what are you thinking? To, to begin to belittle or demean this individual because of their background. How unloving, how immature would it be for someone who doesn't share in that conviction to invite someone who does to a bar or to serve them alcohol at their house as a way of trying to 
get them to get over this temptation. How unloving and how immature would it be if that person came and they said, well, you know, I don't know if you know this, but like, but Jesus drank real wine. His first miracle was to turn water into wine. Paul told Timothy, take some wine for your stomach and you know, you're gonna actually end up drinking it in the wedding supper of the lamb. It's in the book of Revelation, so you might as well get used to drinking it now because you're gonna drink it in eternity. <laughs> How unloving and immature would that be? To try to convince us, well, I don't know, it's, maybe you should just get over this. It's not a sin, don't you know that? Well, maybe it's not a sin for you, but it would violate the conscience of the individual who has such a conviction. In fact, it might, only be, might not only be sinful, it could be catastrophic to their faith. It could destroy everything that God has done up until that point if they violate their conscience and indulge in something that they know is gonna drag them back to where they came from. Yet this is exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. We had these self-proclaimed more mature believers belittling all of these new Christians and trying to convince them that their, their conscience was lying to them, tell them that the conviction wasn't from God, it was just some form of dead religion that they were buying into because ultimately those idols don't have any power over them. And in so doing, they created a culture within this young Corinthian church that elevated the desires of the more mature than the needs of those who were being discipled. It was a culture that cared more about the freedoms of those who've been on the team for a while than the health of those that were just joining the community. And so Paul comes to them and subsequently to us and he begins to unpack this truth. He says, guys, one of the chief responsibilities of a community of faith is to care more deeply about the development of new believers than the rights of those who call themselves mature. One of the main responsibilities of the community of faith is to ensure that those who are coming to Christ have a safe environment to continue to grow in their faith. Even if that means that you embrace some extremes in the process. Because listen, I don't know what it was like for you, but let me speak for myself. When I came to Jesus, extremity was a necessity. When I came to Christ like for real and fully handed my life over to Jesus, I was not gonna be able to dabble in any of the old stuff I did. I need to cut off completely some of those things so that I can continue to grow in God. I had a Hernan Cortez moment where I had to burn the boats and ensure I didn't go back from whence I came. There were relationships that I wasn't able to be in anymore. Friends that I couldn't hang around anymore. Not because I thought they were evil or because I'm like, well, th th those guys, they're, they're all going to hell. That's not at all. I just knew that if I was in that environment, I was not strong enough to keep myself from being caught up in the wake of their actions, so I had to remove myself from it completely. I, I, there was a season in my life where there was entertainment that I had to cut out. I, I hated this season, but the Holy Spirit said to me, for the next couple of months, you're only listening to worship music, and worship music sucked back then. It was not great, it's not like it is today. And Robin told you, I love music. I wanted to be a rock star living on the side of her dad's house, all right? But, the Holy Spirit said, I need you to cut this out of your life. And it wasn't because I thought that secular music was the devil's music and people who listened to it. No. I just knew I had to purge my life of all of this stuff that got me to where I was so that I didn't get drugged back to where I came from. And nobody told me to do these things. It's not like I was reading through a checklist of convictions I was supposed to adopt. No, I just knew me. I knew that if I allowed those things to remain in my life, it was gonna be detrimental to my faith. Furthermore, God knew me, and he was faithful to develop the appropriate convictions in my life to ensure that I continued to develop and become the man of God that he had called me to be.
And, and I would imagine, I am not alone in that regard. I would imagine as we look around this room, there are probably many people here with a variety of convictions. Some of those convictions based on where you've come from, some of them based on God's protection to ensure you, go, you don't go down roads that are gonna take you out. And as a community with a variety of convictions, we not only have the privilege, but we have the obligation to create a culture that honors and respects one another's convictions and ensures that this is a safe space for those who are coming to Jesus to continue to grow and be discipled without it being to their detriment because of the freedoms of the more mature in our midst. And that's a great place for a baby amen right there. <laughs> That's what God has called us to be, to be a community that cares deeply about the youngest among us. There's a reason we invest so much time, energy, and effort into our first 40 class and walking people through the first leg of their journey of faith. There's a reason that, that every single sermon for the last four and a half years has ended the exact same way with a clear call to come and follow Jesus. There's a reason that we talk constantly about being patient with people in their process and not trying to rush the pace, but allow the Holy Spirit to lead them and guide them in their journey and not us trying to impose our sanctification process on them. There's a reason we sing the songs we sing and teach the way we teach and do church the way we do church. It's not because we're trying to be hip or relevant or different. It's because the Holy Spirit has given us a conviction that the Father's house will be a place where those who are coming to Christ can grow in their faith without feeling that they're being pressured or taken out because of the freedoms of other people. That's what God's called us to be. And that does garner the applause of some. But rest assured, it has also brought about some criticism in the process. I have been told on more than one occasion by self-proclaimed mature believers that we are not deep enough for them as they made their way out the door to find another community that they felt could suit their spiritual needs in that season. And at first I was a little offended. I'm like, man, I'm giving you my best. All right, I'm, I'm trying to study and, you know, and I know I'm not the smartest guy. I'm not an intellectual, but I feel like I'm, you know, offering up at least a B plus most weekends. Like, come on, you know, give me a break. But, but then I read the words of Paul here, and I can't help but be okay with the fact that some people have found their exit. Because what did Paul say? He said, those who think that they're wiser, superior knowledge might make you feel important, but it is love that strengthens the church. Specifically love for those who are coming to Christ. So those who wanna elevate their knowledge they don't really know as much as they think they know. Hey, so let me just say this. Listen, if we ain't deep enough for you, that's cool. Deuces. <laughs> no harm, no foul. If you're not getting fed here, by all means, go find another pastor where you can get fed. But as you leave, might I ask you to consider, if you are so mature, could you not go to the pantry yourself and make yourself a meal. Because last time I checked, mature adults don't wait for someone else to make them a sandwich. They know how to go to the cupboard themselves. <laughs> Haters gonna hey, hey, hey. As for the Father's house, we will be a community that is fiercely devoted to those who are coming to faith in Christ because Paul says it makes the church strong. I want a strong church. 
I want a church that is marked by its strength. If I had to choose between depth and strength, which you don't, by the way, but if I did, I will choose strength every single time because as far as I'm concerned, there is nothing deeper than people going from hell to heaven, from going to death to life. There is nothing deeper than seeing people every single Sunday be baptized in water, come up out of those waters in the freedom of Christ and begin to be discipled and walk out their journey with Jesus. If that's not deep, if the simple gospel is not deep enough, then I don't wanna go to the deep end of the pool. I'm gonna stay in the three foot section because that's about as deep as I wanna be. There are way too many people in this city that are lost and on their way to hell to have them walk in this door and be confused because we're trying to be deep. I wanna be as simple as we need to be so that the gospel is clear and the lost are saved. Can I get an amen from the 11 o'clock service on a Sunday morning? Amen. Now, if that's all Paul said about these offerings of meat to idols, then we can conclude our service. I'll go to our favorite Thai restaurant right now and have a great afternoon. But as I mentioned earlier, he skips around and he does speak about this subject once again in chapter 10 as he addresses yet another problem that was present in the church uh, that I, I would be doing us a disservice if I did not at least acknowledge. So let's skip ahead now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he continues the conversation and says, what am I trying to say? Great question, Paul. Uh, am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? Nah, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You can't drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. What, do, do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we're stronger than he is? You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. Now, some of that language should sound very familiar to us because we addressed it in a sermon a couple of weeks ago called Carnal Christianity, where Paul begins to unpack this pervasive cult that's making its way into the church called Gnosticism, a belief system that stated you could do whatever you wanted to do in the physical body and it would have no effect on your spiritual condition. And he now again is quoting some of these creeds of Gnosticism as he says, you say you can do whatever you want, but not everything is good for you and not everything is beneficial. And the reason that Paul is now once again re-quoting these creeds that he stated in chapter six is because he is noticing an area of duality present in the lives of these Corinthian Christians, specifically those individuals who a few chapters ago claimed to be so mature because of their dietary liberties, but now he's beginning to show them how their liberties have taken that freedom a little bit too far. In fact, it's brought them into a place of sin. Now, at face value, it might look like a contradiction because a few chapters ago, he said food offered to idols is fine. There's no demons attached to it. It's all good. You can eat whatever you want to eat. But now he seems to change his tune when he says that these Christians are dining at what he calls the table of demons. But what might look like a contradiction is clarified when we once again dive into the cultural context. So, so what's Paul talking about here? Well, when he speaks of this table of demons, He's speaking about that practice we mentioned just a little bit ago where people would bring the meat to the uh, temple of the pagan god and ask that meat to be possessed so that they could eat it and then be possessed by that pagan god. And he is contrasting this table of demons with what he calls the table of the Lord or communion as we would know it, which we will talk about in a couple of weeks in a later chapter. 
And Paul is very clear here. He says, guys, you can't eat at the Lord's table and then go and eat at the table of demons. Translation, you can't invite the Spirit of God to come and live on the inside of you and then go ask the Spirit of this demonic God to come and live inside of you at the same time. Light and dark cannot coexist. It's, it's God and God alone. You, you can't have this duality taking place in your spirit. And, and I think we would all go, yeah, that seems to make a lot of sense. Like, okay, don't play with demons. Good, okay, good advice. But, but the reason that Paul is suggesting here what seems obvious is because this is actually what was happening in the Corinthian church. People would come to the Father's house on a Sunday morning. It was back then, it was a great service. Uh, and after church, they would skip the donuts on the porch and they'd make their way down to the pagan temple down the road and they'd start to eat the meal that was offered on the altar of that pagan god. And their reasoning was the same as we read a moment ago. They're like, well, it's not a real god. It's just an idol. There's nothing, nothing deep and spiritual about it. I'm just, I like what they're serving over there. Sure, I enjoy what the Father's house is serving here on a Sunday morning, but man, they're serving some great stuff over there at the Temple of Zeus as well. So what's the big deal if I eat a little bit from here and I eat a little bit from there? It was yet another way they were embracing the lie of Gnosticism that they could do whatever they wanted to do with their bodies and it have no spiritual effect on them. But Paul comes and he makes it clear. As one theologian, uh, Kenneth Bailey says, there is no such thing as casual worship. You don't get to just walk in and play with demons. You can't come and engage in all that God has for you and then walk out and try to play with the demons of this world. You may think that you're only feeding your flesh in that moment, but friend, you are opening up your soul to a demonic influence that wants to take you over and you cannot afford to leave those doors open in your life. And so, once again, we, we need to ask ourselves this question. What does this have to do with us? How do we contextualize this? Because chances are people are not leaving here today and going to eat the demon meat down the street, all right? I don't think that's happening. If it is, please don't, okay? Just, just, just don't. That's a bad idea. But if I could distill this, this encouragement down to a single bite-sized statement, I, I think what Paul is, is attempting to convey to us here is ultimately the title of our sermon. He's telling the Corinthian Christians and he's telling us, guys, you need to watch what you eat. You need to be conscious of what you're feeding your spirit. You need to be aware of the fact that there isn't just harmless entertainment or harmless relationships or harmless things that we let in thinking that they don't affect our spiritual condition, you need to understand that those are open doors to the demonic realm and you need to be vigilant about protecting the work that God has done in your heart. Because here's what Paul noticed in Corinth and here's what I've noticed and you've probably noticed it as well. I think many of us want to dine with the divine but snack with demons. That's a good line, isn't it? I wrote that down, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be good. Snack with demons. I know it sounds a little provocative, so, so, so let me illustrate this a little bit. Um, Post-COVID, we did a series here at the church 
called Back to the Table. And no one was allowed to eat with each other anymore, be around each other anymore. So we're trying to encourage people to like, hey, come back around the community of faith. And we looked at these different tables in scripture. And we did talk about this table, the table of demons. And if you were with us back then, you might recall a sermon illustration I used where I had two tables on stage with me. One of them had communion or the the table of the Lord. And the other one representing the table of demons had a bunch of fast food from different fast food restaurants. One of which was a number one from from, from McDonald's with Big Mac. And I ate my first Big Mac on stage in 15 years because Robin has forbidden our family from eating fast food. And it was glorious. It was just as good as I hoped it would be. And uh, I considered using that illustration once again, not because I thought it was particularly good, but because I felt like it would be a great excuse to eat fast food again, and, you know, it's because it's for Jesus at church. And, but then I listened to Robin's sermon last week, and she told us that my body belongs to her and not to myself, and so I'm not allowed to do those sorts of things anymore. And so instead, I found a different illustration that I think will work and will resonate uh, with many of us today. So, so let's check. Um, Anyone in the room, like me, have a late night snacking problem? Anyone? Come on, you can be honest, just us and Jesus in church, okay? He knows if you're lying. Okay, good, all right. Like, you get on the couch and you lose all self-control. You're like, I don't know who I am anymore. Like that, that kind of situation, yeah. Yeah, my hand is raised. So, so here's how it goes for, for, for me. Um, Robin and I, we eat dinner pretty early uh, because we have kids now. All the parents know when you have kids, you eat at like the senior citizen hour suddenly because if you don't feed your kids by a certain time, they will torture you for the rest of the night. And so we eat pretty early. And uh, generally speaking, as would be evidenced by our fast foodless life, we eat pretty clean. Uh, as I think over the last couple of weeks of meals, um, We've had uh, zoodles, which it's like zucchini instead of noodles. It works. Uh, We've had burgers without buns. We've had uh, quinoa bowls with meat. Just pray for me, guys, all right? (laughs) It's rough at my house. (laughs) I have to sneak away to eat normal food. It's horrible. But we eat pretty clean. Uh, And then after dinner, we usually hang out with the kids for a couple hours, play some games, watch Full House, do something. And then we try to get our kids into bed by like 8.30 or 9 o'clock so that we can put into practice another one of Robin's sermon points from last weekend. If you're going to preach about it, you got to be about it, you know what I mean? Okay. (laughs) That's inappropriate. And then... When we're finished, we go to the couch and we do what probably most of us in the room do. We sit down and we watch a show and just enjoy and veg out for the rest of the evening. But you know how it goes, right? You're like, okay, tonight I'm gonna be good. I'm just gonna drink tea on the couch or just drink some some water. I'm gonna behave myself. But then you sit down. You guys are all laughing because you know how this goes. And then like five minutes in, you're like, (sighs) it's like you haven't eaten in 17 days and your stomach's like, please feed me. And this is what I do, full disclosure. I told her this first service, she didn't know. But uh, I'll sit on the couch sometimes and just see if she caves first. I'm like, so that I look like the better person. I'm like, oh, you had to go get the snacks, all right? But eventually someone caves and, and they go get snacks and they bring them over to the couch. And if you're like us, those are not clean snacks, all right? No one's trying to eat carrot sticks and almonds while they watch The Office, right? Now, if you're anything like us, generally those snacks look a little bit like this. (laughs) 
Yeah, you know, there's, there's some good stuff up here. Um, there's some peanut butter M&Ms. Anyone like peanut? These are my favorite. Anyone down with these? There we go. Let's throw a couple of these out there. Okay. <laughs> um, these, are, these are gluten-free, so they, they, they're healthy, which is good. Uh, these are thin, thin and light, which is, I think that's what they make you when you eat them. So we just, we eat a lot of those. This is good. So, so this is what our snacks look like. And before you know it, you're sitting on the couch and like you've shoveled down a sleeve of Oreos and a, and a tube of cookie dough, which by the way, I didn't forget to eat this. This is how you're supposed to eat cookie dough, just so you know. Fresh out of the tube, right out of the fridge. Thank you, Jesus. There it is. I told my kids the best part of this sermon illustration is that daddy gets to bring it home after church and eat it tonight. Hallelujah. Okay. But as I was thinking about our snacking problem, I'm like, isn't this a perfect picture of what happens in the spirit with so many of us? Think about it. We, we come and we want to we dine with the divine. We, we come and we accept the free gift of salvation. We say, Holy Spirit, fill me to overflowing and Lord, I want all that you have to offer me. Lead and guide my life. We taste, we see that the Lord is good. But then we leave the table of the Lord and we start snacking. We start diving back into some things. That's fantastic. That we know we're no good for us, but it's like there's this insatiable hunger they can't be quelled, and so we keep going back to these other things and snacking. We hear the scripture that says, be anxious about nothing, pray about everything, and then the God of peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, and you're like, yes, I want a big old helping of God's peace. Please serve it up. But then we snack on entertainment and news articles and things that feed into our anxieties and our fears, and when we get anxious, we cope by snacking on those mechanisms that have kept us until that point instead of praying like the scripture tells us to. And then we wonder why we're anxious and afraid all the time. We hear, behold, I have good plans for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future, not to harm you. are like, yes, please. Big old plate of that. Nom, nom, nom. I want the hope in the future. But then we continue to nibble on the plans that we drafted when we were away from God for our lives. We daydream about what we want to do and where we see ourselves never surrendering the fullness of those plans to the king. We hear, I want to be blessed, prosper. God's going to provide for all your needs. We're like, yes, that sounds awesome. But then we find out that that blessing is predicated on our sacrifice. Giving God the first tenth of our income, we're like, oh, that doesn't sound so appealing. And so we snack on the ways of this world and we spend all that we have on ourselves feeling unfulfilled in the process. Maybe there's a single guy or two in the room who's looking for a wife and you're like, I'm holding out for the Proverbs 31 woman, the one with an honorable reputation at the gates of the city, whatever that means. <laughs> a woman of God. But you don't realize that in order to qualify for a Proverbs 31 woman, you can't be a Proverbs 5 man who is lingering at the door of the adulteress and snacking on social media and swiping right and websites with no self-control as you feed your flesh. We, we want to eat at two tables. We want all that God has to offer, but we also want to be able to snack with some of those things from our past. 
And the Apostle Paul would come to us today and say, guys, this duality does not work. You can't dine at two tables. You can't have all that God wants to offer you and all that the world wants to offer you at the same time. It just does not work. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have your God and your demons too. Jesus is not interested in being one of many meals that you eat. He demands to be the one and only table that you sit at and you source for all your fulfillment and all your joy and all your peace. One and one alone. And I know in a non-committal culture, that sounds demanding and small-minded and, and it sounds like, like a, a massive sacrifice, but there's a reason that Jesus demands such exclusivity. And it is that reason that Paul concludes this portion of his letter with in the final verses we're gonna look at this morning. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as the worship team comes and we conclude, but look at what he says. He says, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one flesh, one flesh, one body, one flesh. Familiar language, because Paul used it last week. Same language he used to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife. When he said a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined together with his wife and the two will become one flesh and what God has brought together, let nobody try to tear apart. This is this marriage language that Paul's using. But he's not talking about marriage any longer. He's talking about the relationship between heaven and humanity. Why? Why would he use this matrimony language here? Well, ultimately what Paul is attempting to display is that it really isn't about food, tables, angels, demons. It's not about a meal. You wanna sum up the entirety of your relationship with Jesus in one word? It's marriage. You've made a covenant with God. In the same way that a man would leave his mother and his father and be joined together with his wife and what God brought together, no one's supposed to separate. There is a covenant that you've cut with God and it's been affirmed by his spirit that lives on the inside of you. It is the sign and the seal of that covenant. And once that spirit indwells you, there's no room for anybody else in there. It's supposed to be oneness. In the same way that a husband or a wife would not tolerate their spouse dipping in and out of beds of other lovers, so Jesus is not gonna tolerate dipping from one table to the next, to the next while we try to find our fulfillment. What he's trying to say is everything you need is found in me. I know it feels like you gotta feed your flesh, but I promise you that need is fulfilled in Jesus. There's peace in Jesus. There's purpose in Jesus. And I'm out of time, so, so, so let me pose this question. If we are told here to be careful about our diets in the spirit, let me ask you very simply before we conclude, what are you eating? What are you eating today? Are, are you satisfied with Jesus? Is your soul settled in him? 
Or, or are you finding other things to try to fill voids in your life? Thinking that they're harmless in the process, not recognizing that there's a door open that needs to be shut. And if you discover that there is some duality in your diet, let me give some advice today. Perhaps it's time to consider the approach of the young believer, the same one that the mature guys criticized back in chapter eight. Maybe it's time to get aggressive about some stuff in your life, to burn some boats, to embrace some extremity, to say where God is calling me is not worth clinging to this worthless thing any longer, but I need to purge this out of my life. I know that it's gonna be painful, I know that people are gonna look at me sideways or question my motives, but where God is taking me is worth whatever sacrifice is necessary to get there. Maybe it's time to get a little bit extreme about the convictions that need to be formed in your life. Because here's what Paul said, and here's what we need to be convinced of. He said, I would rather never eat meat again if it means that no one's gonna stumble as a result of it. And I ask you this question. What would you rather never do again? Never engage in again so that you never stumble again. When you can answer that question and lay that thing at the altar, buckle up, because everything God's got on the other side of that decision is everything that you truly want. Let, let me pray. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Speak to us today about these areas of our lives. Lord, we don't wanna live with unsurrendered areas of our hearts, unsurrendered areas of our lives. We want all that you have. We want that oneness with Christ. God, we repent for, for, for trying to find satisfaction in other things, for snacking in areas we shouldn't be snacking. But God, may we find fulfillment in you today. And, and as we conclude, as I promised earlier, since this is a house that cares deeply about those that are coming to Christ, we must make a moment for that this morning. Maybe you're here today and you would say, I I'm far from Jesus. Uh, you talk about dining at the table of divine, feeling the forgiveness of my sins, accepting the free gift of salvation. These are things I need to do. Maybe you were walking with Jesus at one time and you've drifted, or maybe today is the first day you need to make that decision. But I wanna take a sacred moment here and pray a prayer of commitment with anyone in the room that needs to make that decision. But before I pray, if that's you, nobody's looking around, would you just simply lift up your hand and look at me and say, Tim, I'm coming to Jesus today so that we can celebrate that. Thank you, bro, got you in the back. Got you right over there, ma'am, yeah. Got you, thank you, sir. Right on, bro, got you. Thank you. All right, church, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray out loud with all these making this decision today so they don't feel alone. Repeat after me, say, Jesus, Today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. Forgive me of my sin and help me to be your disciple, to walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, let's celebrate with every single one of those people making that decision to come to Jesus today. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.